Hello and welcome to the Keeping the Peace podcast with me, Alexis Powell Howard. In this second series, we're exploring the challenges of different roles in policing and how officers and staff manage their self-care when undertaking challenging roles. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Barry Calder, who is a firearms officer, and Stephen Hartshorn, ex-firearms officer and Fed rep. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good afternoon. Good, thank you. How's things? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you, Barry? You okay? I'm very well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming to join me. Um, do you want to kind of introduce yourself a little bit in terms of your background in policing and um, how long you've been in the job for and that kind of thing? If I come to you first, Barry, would you be able to do that? Certainly. Uh, I've been in the job for 29 years, uh, you know, almost to the day, in fact, I think the next week, 29 years in. Uh, I've had a really good, varied career, uh, you know, which, you know, I did about, what, four or five years as a, a response officer on a, well, back in those days, they were called relief officers. Uh, I then became um, a sort of like uniformed crime squad type home beat officer for um, a very busy area of the West End of London, Leicester Square which was great fun to work in, uh, really good fun. And then uh, after being in that particular area uh, for about 12 years, uh, I got threatened with tenure, uh, the policy at the time of moving police officers about. Mm. So I thought rather than being sent somewhere I didn't want to go, I better start looking for a nice job and, you know, something, you know, that I'll enjoy. So I was just looking through the first day of thinking about it, and there was an advert for MSP. Um, uh, Specialist Firearms Command Armed Response Vehicle Officers. And uh, I can remember I had a friend in it, and I, the stories he told me, how much he enjoyed the work, and I thought, oh, that sounds good. I'll give that a go. Mm. And um, so ever since then, back in um, 2003, 2004, I've been a firearms officer. Um, Specialist Firearms Command for 13, 13 and a half years, and uh, a protection officer, a uniform protection officer uh, for role to protection for the last five years. Wow, that sounds incredible. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Thank you for that. How about for you, Steve? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, I feel like an amateur compared to Barry. I've only got 26 <laughs> years in the job, still a baby. Um, for me, I did uh, 10 years out in East London um, before it was always my career goal to become part of the Firearms Command. I wanted to um, be part of something different and very challenging. So, say, 10 years on, on Outer Borough and then went to the Firearms Command in about 2005. And then whilst I was there, um, I became involved in incidents and, and how we looked after colleagues. So I decided, oh, no, I'd become a Federation rep because that was the way that we could facilitate the welfare and support to colleagues. So took an additional role in 2008 as a Fed rep. And that gradually sort of took over um, my interest where I became the full-time Federation rep for the same Firearms Command that Barry was in at the end of 2012. And then remain there until 2018, where I suppose my efforts and my skill set I had acquired, I was able to move over to the National Police Federation of England and Wales um, as part of the national board and become the UK lead for firearms, taser and post incident procedures. So it's all worked out quite naturally, really, in, in how my career was flowed on, on the back of others' jobs and working to make sure that we can look after our colleagues as best as we possibly can. Mm, absolutely sounds amazing okay so I mean obviously for, for me as somebody who's obviously not in the police and you know trying to understand about being a firearms officer that it sounds like both of you kind of deliberately went that direction and you know and have had a, an you know amazing careers in that as well um what do you think has been the kind of amazing part of the job what's the bit that you absolutely love about it I'll come to you first Steve Oh, that's a tough question. It's one of the questions that get asked when you want to go to the department. Why do you want to go there? 
Um, <laughs> it's like an I interview. <laughs> it's yeah, it is really. Um, it's an incredibly challenging post because when you're working on a on a, a local area, you deal with a certain level of cr criminality, mm. and then when you decide to go to a, a specialist command such as firearms, you're taken on a different tier of crime where they've got access to lethal weapons. They've got very scant regard for human life or even respect for human life. And for me, it was what in that challenge to take everything that I'd learned as a beat officer, response officer, doing early's lates and nights and challenging myself, but also working with a team of professionals who all wanted to be there. And that's the thing with firearms is you volunteer to go there. So everybody's motivated to the same, same goals and aims is to, to be the best you possibly can to do a really good job and to try and take away some of that level of criminality that is just a, a horrible and really detrimental effect to the public and colleagues across the UK and it's you know it's uh, I've yet to find anything that is as rewarding for me personally um, and that was my main driver for being there really. Mm. Sounds It sounds incredibly rewarding is it the same thing for you Barry or is it, are there other things that you love about it? Yeah, my, my time in the Specialist Forums Command, so, well, you know, to, uh, putting it down into one sentence, yeah, it was all about saving lives. Um, you know, whether, you know, as Steve said, you know, some of the criminals we came up against, they had just no regard at all for human life. And uh, they would be carrying weapons, firearms, machetes, you know, all sorts of things. They, they'd be quite prepared to use them on unarmed officers or members of the public, should they try and stop them. You know, a lot of the um, operations that I was involved in over the years was in, you know, intelligence-led operations where we received information that, uh, you know, Criminal A was on his way to murder, a lot of the time, Criminal B. And, uh, you know, and we, we'd we be putting in the intervention, we'd be, we'd be stopping those um, persons en route, you know, to do that. They, they'd be pulled out of a vehicle, you know, very safely, obviously, making sure it's safe for all. As, as much as possible and um, they'd have a loaded firearm or any other types of weapons and it'd be just that thought of walking away thinking well what we did tonight it's not going to make the news you know the, you know the, there's been nothing traumatic there's been nothing really bad happens we've stopped a bad guy with a gun and we've saved someone's life and just the thought of that as well and and that sort of leads on to some of the other training we were lucky to get within the specialist firearms command i was one of the medics so a lot of the times we'd be first on scene to uh, police, uh, no, sorry, not police shootings, but um, shootings uh, where the area was still deemed too dangerous before they could send paramedics in. And uh, it would be our job to obviously keep victims going as best we could mm -hmm. until we could hand it over to the, the ultimate professionals, whether that be paramedics or the helicopter emergency medical service. And again, I, I genuinely couldn't count how many times I've been my hands and knees uh, giving people first aid and keeping them going until they've got proper good professional help and you walk away again knowing we did something good tonight we saved someone and it's just as corny as it may sound it, it just makes you feel good when you walk away from that and the, the work is probably some of the most enjoyable work I've ever done. I was just thinking in terms of that job satisfaction really that and actually as well part of it is it, it's I guess it's good if it doesn't end up in the papers and it's not something that's reported on because you've done a good job you know it hasn't gone that far um so so stepping in and either stopping something from happening or you know that intervention as you said it's like you're kind of changing that whole course aren't you for and, and actually the public probably won't be aware of that but you, for you you know that you've done that and it's been really incredibly important to to be that person who stops it or that team that stops it 
Definitely so. I, th I think if you're uh, after public public praise, um, my advice would be never be a firearms officer. <laughs> And uh, it's, uh, you know, because the, the only time the public really get to hear about things in depth and in detail is where, um, whether it be an operation or an incident, hasn't uh, gone the way we want it to go mm. and shots may have been fired. But um, as I said, uh, you know, it's only bad news that sells and, you know, ma makes it onto the media significantly. Mm. And, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of our work involved saving lives just we were there simply just to stop bad guys hurting other people and they uh, being there just to you know try and prevent you know victims um dying or being um seriously injured yeah okay yeah that makes sense so just from a because I, I, I was just thinking there is barry was talking steve that you must have to have an incredible team around you that you rely on and that you absolutely can trust that they've got your back and i guess that comes from the training but is how important is that kind of team aspect of it whether it's a camaraderie of it and there's some of that dark humor that I know kind of gets banded about or whether it's um you know just that support when you're you know on an operation if you like yeah it, it's crucial you literally do put your life in your colleagues hands if if ever you're doing um, what we call like a limited entry into a premises uh, you know going to execute a warrant to try and arrest and detain some of these people you, you might be going through the door first into a room and your number two, who is literally right behind you on your shoulder, is going in the room and they are they're covering you. They are your safety net in case there is someone hidden behind the door that, that you just can't deal with. They, you know, I've never found a more professional team of people who have all got the same goal of trying to achieve a safe objective, but also be very professional in how they do that. And it's, it's reassuring that, you know, everyone has gone through the same course, the same level of training, has got the same professional approach in not only dealing with the job, but dealing with anything that might come from that job. And as Barry's mentioned, you know, if sometimes in the press you hear, oh, it's gone wrong, shots have been fired, someone's been killed. It's not gone wrong. It, it's what you train for. And that's a bit hard for members of the public, but also at times, I think for senior officers to understand that we, we train for that that shots may have to be fired in response to a situation and that the level of training you get, you know, over the many shootings that, the, that we've had across the UK, certainly that I've, I suppose, lucky enough to be dealt with as a federation rep, that every officer said, you know, that the training has been so good, it has been like a training scenario, which prepared them really, really well to deal with the situation, the shots fired, but also the, the post-shooting care, because what perhaps many people don't realise is that as an officer, you may have to engage and take a shot, which may be fatal or otherwise, but then you immediately drop on to doing first aid to care for that person you've shot, which is just as important. You know, we, we have responsibilities to these people, but that never seems to get teased out in the press that we've gone from what, what people might term as an aggressor to a carer. And you literally do it within a split second because you don't want anybody to die. You're there to make that job as safe as you possibly can. But unfortunately, and one of my colleagues sort of said this over many years ago, is the public aren't part of the briefings. They don't know to stand still and put their hands up and almost surrender. You know, you've got this fight or flight ability and people want to fight and flight because they don't want to do serious length of time in prison. So it's, um, yeah, it's very rewarding to be part of that, I think, very highly skilled team of officers. You're listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast produced in collaboration between Oscar Kilo, the National Police Wellbeing Service, and Fortis Therapy and Training. 
I think as well when you, you're describing it like that, you know, that you've gone from having to, you know, manage an incident and what's going on then to kind of caring for somebody that has been injured. Um, you're absolutely right. That isn't teased out, is it? That's not, it's not kind of something that's spoken about or, or acknowledged in terms of that level of training and, and then what you're having to do as part of your role within that job, if you like. Um, I, I was thinking there as well um, that I think a lot of people maybe think about it in terms of looking at it as it would be in a movie. You know, you've kind of got those, those ideas, those, those ways of how those things might pan out. And it's not at all like that. Barry, it, does that kind of frustrate you a bit that you kind of have those, there's those views in the, in the public, if you like, but actually the reality is quite different. Yeah, Hollywood has got a lot to answer for. You know, I, I'm a big f- film buff, you know, just as much as the next person. I love a good action film, but none of it's real. You know, um, I, I'll, I've been involved in many instances over the years. You know, I know many of my colleagues have. You know, I, I'll read things in the press. You know, you, you'll get um, people that be, you know, journalists or, you know, people in the, um, social media giving opinions. Well, why didn't, you know, criminally get shot in the hand? You know, that would have made, made him. No, it wouldn't, because all they do is pick the gun out with the other hand. You know, it's just, there's so much that we see, you know, in films, you know, they're just completely made up, you know, a subject getting hit with one round, one bullet, and uh, they're no longer a threat. Well, you know, sometimes somebody has to be hit with multiple rounds. Mm-hmm. We have to stop the threat, you know, when it comes to that. And if that threat is only stopped after two bullets are fired at them, that's good. If that threat continues and 20 bullets have to be fired at them, then that's the same job. It's stopping that threat. You know, we're, we're, we're not there to kill. We, we know as a consequence of firing those rounds, the chances of killing that person are off the scale so mm. hard. But we're not there to kill. We just want to stop that threat. We want to stop it there and then so no one's at any more risk. But yeah, unfortunately, um, as Steve said, uh, people don't have the same briefings as us they're not aware of how people react in, in the very in the very strange ways they react as well you know it's, it's, it's panic sometimes we, we're aware of that so you know a lot of police um shootings uh, the ones that i'm aware of police officers tend to wait probably more than they should putting themselves really at risk you know to give those people the absolute opportunity to give themselves up stopping a threat and uh, if that carries on though then inevitably you know, the shots will be fired. Yeah, and that's the job you've got to do, isn't it? That's the reality, reality of doing the job as well. It, uh, for Steve, I mean, when we when I said that about the kind of moves, I saw you laugh there about, you know, because I know it's it's something that's kind of so far from reality. How do you kind of think about that in terms of the people who are doing the job and and how they might be perceived by others? Because I suppose when you, as soon as you say firearms, potentially in some people's heads, it's like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna have to take a life. Um, but actually the way that you're both of you speaking about it is about you know the threat and about saving lives and actually stopping incidences it's a very different perspective isn't it to what you'd what you'd kind of imagine I guess without understanding it yeah it's completely different and Barry kind of touched on it when he talked about Hollywood and and over the time I've coined the phrase of the Hollywood effect because you get the sort of the social media type the, the journalists who have a perception of what a gun does to a person you know they get shot they go flailing backwards with their arms moving round and there's grotesque scenes or you've got muzzle flash everywhere and quite often there's none of that it, it, it officers have told me that when they've pulled the trigger and they've watched it it has gone into slow motion for them 
sometimes they don't perhaps realize the impact of the bullet at the time because they're so focused on looking at the threat of the weapon. You've then got the public who expect a certain thing and a certain reaction when they see or hear something. There is a kind of a good side to that Hollywood effect though in that if you look at the use of taser and laser dots on people, because they've seen it all on in films and in dramas, they instinctively know that if that laser light is there, it's either a gun or a taser. Some people have put their hands up and gone, all right, I give up, because mm. they know that there is an immediate threat to them, which is kind of good. Um, I just wish it had the same effect on everybody, and they all realise that, look, if armed police are there, it's for a reason, because there's a really credible threat to life, and that we're there to do it as safe as you possibly can. And, and it was interesting, when I first joined the command, my first boss, he sort of took me in within the first 10 minutes and said, right, Steve, um, I'm here to make your job safe. I want you to enjoy it. He said, and I will never, ever put you in a position, hopefully, where you may have to take a shot. He said, but if I do, you'll be there for the right reasons because it's been deemed so serious that it needs a firearms response. And for me, being sort of relatively young, brand new to the department, I'm thinking, hang on a minute. I want to get involved and do my job. But then when you go away and have a chat with more experienced people and go, you know, if that's what the boss said, they go, yeah. And that's what we're there for. And it was a really good levelling chat that, you know, I joined the command in 2005. I've never forgotten it to this day. And it's a really good mantra that, you know, we are there to, to do the job as safe as we can. But ultimately, there is a, a side where you may have to pull, squeeze the trigger, my instructors, colleagues would say, squeeze the trigger and a life may be taken. Um, and that's the reality of why they're there. But I've yet to meet anybody who's actually joined. So they, I definitely want to do that. On the contrary, they don't. But they want to be part of an amazing team of officers that can do that job. And they don't want the limelight. It's quite the opposite. When cameras turn up, they want to disappear. They want to get in the vehicles and, and go back to the base, do their evidential accounts, have a cup of tea and go home and, and you know, blend away. So, And that's the reality for many, many officers. Mm, absolutely. I was thinking when you were talking earlier that, you know, you said about the, that fight or flight response. And obviously when someone's being caught or you're, you know, you, you want them to stop and they're not stopping um, and you get those reactions. And as you said, Barry, there's those really kind of strange reactions that, that people have when they're in those situations as well. How do how because there must be times when, you know, you've felt under threat and felt scared and, you know, have to. I know the training kicks in, so it becomes more like a kind of cognitive thing it's almost like a muscle reflex and a you know mental reflex isn't it but how do you kind of manage those feelings because I guess you must have to suppress some of that in order to be able to think clearly and to be able to do the job is that something that you do in your training or is that something you learn with experience if I come to you first Barry you know the the, tra the training we get you know it, it is second to none it's it's you know it's fantastic it, over the years I've been very lucky I've had some awesome instructors and it's exceptional but I think the difficulty is in any sort of training you're always going to know that that subject in the training environment in front of you is not going to take your life you you will always know that that's there you know you've got to act proportionately you've got to act in a responsible manner you've got to obviously perform as if it was all real but then you'll go onto the street and you'll face that person you know, you'll be walking down towards, um, you know, a subject, you know, a, a male, let's say, for instance, who you've be, had information, they've got a gun in their pocket. They'll turn around, you know, you'll give a challenge, you know, stop arm, please show your hands, show your hands. Very loud, very nice, very clear, you know, so that they're under no illusion that they know what to do, but also so that other people around you know exactly what you're doing and what you're telling them to do as well. But 
you know, it's those thoughts at the time. It's all very instinctive. It's all very natural. It's um, robotics, the wrong term. I suppose it's, um, it's, it's instilled into your training, but usually it's not till afterwards you think, blimey, you know, I saw his hand hovering towards his pocket. You know, he could have taken that gun out there. That was close. You know, and it's not till afterwards, you, I think the fullness of the incident really starts starts to begin to hit home. Uh, we've obviously got, you know, you know, we've talked about flight or, you know, fight. But for us, you know, I don't think I don't know anyone that gets a bit scared, gets a bit nervous when they've been in those situations. And of course, there's the adrenaline as well, you know, and the adrenaline does keep you going. And, you know, if you've been involved in something particularly horrible, particularly nasty, I've had it before. I've sat down and I've actually been shaking afterwards. You know, after the incident, I've been all right during it. And even when everything's turned out okay, had a laugh, said to the guys, right, let's get back in the car, go back, you know, uh, so we can crack on with our statements, get the evidence all completed. I'm sat in the car and I can remember thinking, I'm shaking here, you know, and I realise I've just had a big fright and it's only just really sinking in now how I feel. So, yeah, the, the training's very important, but... It, it can never instill the real world. It just, it, it just physically can't. I, I wish it could, you know, but, you know, there's all different aspects of training. You know, there's live stooges that we can use, you know, instru instructors playing the bad guys. There's, we've got judgment ranges, you know, where it's like a big video range in front of us mm -hmm. where it all takes place. But um, it's, it's not real. It's as close as you can get, but you know in the back of your head it's not real. So yeah. I, I don't think... Um, you can really prepare for being a bit scared, being a bit nervous. And I, I think if someone told me they weren't scared or a bit concerned about going into an incident where someone could kill you or a colleague, I'll be more worried about the person telling me they weren't than... Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Actually, that's a natural reaction, isn't it? And you need that time to process kind of almost like physiologically as well. Your body's kind of catching up with what's just happened to so the adrenaline and all that response that you're having, that shaking you just described is... You need time to catch up with what's just happened, isn't it? Because it all happens so fast as well, potentially. So you haven't had chance to do that. So, so yeah, it's it's a worry if you don't feel that, isn't it? Because it's a natural reaction to being under threat, I guess. It's it's, it's a completely natural reaction, and and again, and uh, we're all individuals, and people deal with these things and you know their own separate different ways me i'll have a little bit of a shake and then you know i was a bit you know a bit old-fashioned you know once i had a cup of tea or a cup of coffee you know everything was right with the world then thank and god then, for tea is all i can say ex exactly <laughs> have a brew it'll all be fine everything's fine after one of them and, um, uh, carry so, on sorry Go on. Yeah, yeah you know but you know so everyone deals with th things in their own way but you know, we, we were quite lucky because um, one of the processes that we, um, you know, that I did when I was in the Specialist Firearms Command, and I know they still do it now, it's after every job, after every incident, uh, the guys would go off separately, of course, you don't want to say separately, you know, do their own individual evidence, you know, take care, take care of that, get that um, completed. And once that's done, uh, so there's no more evidence to be written up, the guys would all sit down together and they would have a debrief. And it would be about, and this would be every job, what went wrong, you know, what went well, you know, what could we do better, you know, and it's all about improving our performance, making things safer for us. You know, if there was anything really glaringly obvious of concern, we would raise it with the bosses so they could feed it back into the training environment. And uh, but 
also doing that as well, it was you and your colleagues having a chat. And to me, that was defusing as well. So that was another way of getting rid of, you know, this, you know, any problems that may, you know, happen afterwards. You were sitting down and chatting about the incident with a colleague and, and being able to process it bit by bit, almost like telling each other a story. Yeah, so important. It's so important to talk about, talk it out, isn't it? That's, I think that's one of the things. I know when we see officers for therapy, often they've been in circumstances where they haven't had the opportunity to do that, that kind of debrief or trim process, or just even talking to a colleague, you know, and it hasn't happened. And and then what's kind of remained stuck in terms of that trauma, I suppose, is, is the thing that can make people quite unwell. So especially with a job like that, it feels like that's got to be a crucial part of it's part of the job, isn't it? It's just got to be part of any any incident, I guess. Steve, from your perspective, obviously as a Fed rep and having you know been doing that now for a long time and representing people and supporting people, um, how do you see people kind of reacting and responding <clears throat> to these? You know, from a we just talked there about you know suppressing or maybe processing that that response and those feelings after the event, but. You know, there must be difficulties around that sometimes for people. Yeah, I've seen a, a real sort of variation in in how people cope and react to. I mean, normally whenever shots have been fired and then uh, it's been declared a critical incident, we, we go through what's called a post-incident procedure, a PIP, mm. whereby uh, everybody involved will return to a PIP venue. And for us, it just happens to be sort of Le uh, our base at Lehman Street in East London. And then we'd, we'd call, the Federation get called out, our solicitors would be called out, our post-incident manager, our professional standards, and also the, depending on the severity of the shooting, if it was fatal, it'd be the IOPC. If it was non-fatal, it might not be them, it might just be professional standards. Uh, so you'd have officers returning at various stages, and it's hard for people to understand, but sometimes you get a sense of elation. People come back because they've survived something. They've been involved in a, a high threat and risk incident where they, they've neutralised the threat. And it's not until they stop, physically stop, take the kit off and go, wow, I've just come through something here where I've either pulled the trigger or my colleagues pulled the trigger. I've been right next to them. And then they start that, that processing of dealing with what's just happened in front of them. If, you know, in the rare event that they do have to pull the trigger or if shots are fired or a threat is posed to a colleague, they start to think about that and go, oh, I've just survived it. And they're glad to have survived it. And to perhaps the casual onlooker, that sense of elation might seem inappropriate or disproportionate. But to that officer, it, it, it's massive. It's the adrenaline dumps kicking in thinking, wow, I've gone through it. I've seen people come back who I've thought are in a, a really sort of dire place because they just look quite morose and are very quiet. But I've learned over the years, everybody processes things differently. Mm. And it's just their sort of internal coping process that they need to get to grips with something first because they know what's coming. They know they're going to have to sit down at some point to provide an evidential account. Um, I'd like to think they realised they had some really good support in terms of sort of legal welfare, federation, but also colleague and peer support, which is, I think that's probably the unsung hero of everything that we've ever done as farms officers, is the people you work with really are your rock. They're there because they've lived and breathed the same experience as you. And even if they've never pulled the trigger, they probably know someone that has or have been aware of it and they know exactly what that means to somebody because then there's going to be probably quite a lengthy investigation process where they will provide the evidential account of their, not only their physical actions, but their thoughts. And going back to the early part about fear, 
you know, if you've got no fear, how can you write down in your evidential account that you had an honest held belief and a fear that something would happen to either yourself or your colleagues? You can't. It's only natural to have the fear. Um, and when officers intervene, we've already talked about the fight or flight response, but we've also got the freeze response. Mm. Hopefully you can capture the subject in that freeze moment where you don't have to pull the trigger. But also it's the same for officers. They might freeze as well because sometimes they're thinking, right, do I need to do this? Is it the safest response that they're con perhaps considering other tactical options? Is someone else in a better position to do it? And everyone's got what we call a different line in the sand of when they may respond to that specific threat. And, we, you know, we've had incidents where a subject has pointed the gun, maybe not at the officer, but at other people. Officers have had to pull the trigger because they've perceived a threat towards other people, other officers who are armed. And even though, you know, farms officers have got body armor on, ballistic helmets, ballistic shields, a bullet is a very fast and small thing that, if it's aimed properly and there's a deficiency in that protection, it can kill potentially. Mm. You know, guns and bullets were designed to kill. They weren't designed as playthings. And that's the reality that farms officers are up against and having to do with that. And it, it takes quite a lot of internal thinking to make sure that you've done the right thing when you've had to pull the trigger because you know there's going to be critics who are going to be pouring over it in minute detail for days, weeks, months, even years to make sure you've done the right thing in law and invariably they have because mm. the training has provided that that as long as they've got an honest held belief and it's reasonable and they've done everything they can you know to mitigate they've gone through sort of doing nothing to talk into communicating to maybe other less lethal responses there is only one other ultimate option to that immediate threat to life is a response with an immediate threat to life and you know I think most of my colleagues would agree if if anybody can develop something that can counteract the need to use a firearm, bring it on, please do, because it would be nice where we didn't have to get to that point where, you know, human beings have to take the life of another human being. Mm. But until then, there is a job to be done and we have to do it as safe as we possibly can. Mm. Absolutely. And when you were saying that, I was thinking that internally that that kind of internal dialogue that's going on all the time you know that it's almost like a risk assessment it's a strategy it's a you know consideration of the rest of the people that you, you're there with everything's going on isn't it and trying to weigh up constantly what's the right course of action and and I think that process then of being investigated after that you know it's incredibly hard you know I've worked with officers who've gone through investigations and they can go on for as you said years and it's it's just hanging there all the time isn't it and the the, the kind of you you might fully know that you've done absolutely the right thing in the moment and you've got all the evidence to prove that but until that decision's made it's just it's just there um and ongoing and I think that can be really stressful um especially if like you say it's actually the last course of action that you would want to take you've tried everything else you possibly can beforehand um and it's that can be quite that can be the part I think that I've seen that that creates that um, ripple effect after an event, an incident, rather than potentially the incident itself. If that makes sense, you're, you're nodding there, Barry. Can you relate to that? Can you see that? Yes, um, I can. Um, uh, obviously, I'm not going to talk about the incident in too much no. detail. It'd be unfair, but um, uh, you know, a number of years ago, I I unfortunately shot and killed someone. Uh, you know, we, we, we did, um, that day, we did everything we possibly could not to. You know, none, none of us wanted to do that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I was one of the officers that pulled the trigger. I didn't want to do it. And as you said, uh, that then forgoes. You know, we, we, 
you know, Steve's already mentioned uh, the post-incident process. So we have to then go step into that. So then at the time, that takes away the options that we've got to debrief. We can't, that's evidence. You know, we've got to, you know, go through quite rightly an inquest process, you know, where we've got to fully justify, you know, and explain why we've done what we've done. Uh, the incident I was involved in, uh, from the shooting to the inquest where I gave evidence was two and a half years. Wow. And all I want to do, you know, in the, in the face of lots of horrible stuff in social media, lots of horrible things in the press, uh, and it's not just me, it's, you know, and, you know, I, I'm big enough and ugly enough to deal with a lot of the things that are said, but, you know, when I've got my poor old mum, you know, speaking to me on the phone, you know, saying that she's just read that, you know, some commentator, and you know, in a newspaper saying that I should be charged with murder, you know, not being named, but my mum knows it's me because, mm. you know, with hindsight, you know, if it was ever to happen to me again, I, would, I wouldn't tell her because mm. I wouldn't want her to go through that, you know, but uh, it, we, we want to sing from the rooftops why we've done what we've done. We want to tell the world that we are very, very restricted in when we can do that. And it's only until you go and give that evidence, you know, at an inquest mm. that you can do so. And of course, you know, that inquest is difficult in itself as well, because yes, you may have that anonymity, you know, from the press, you know, to the and the public, but you don't have that uh, anonymity in person, facially, you know, with the coroner, with the, you know, the jury, with um, the, uh, all the barristers, you know, but, you know, the, the person's family who you have shot and killed, you know, I gave evidence and I must've been about 10 feet standing away from them with them all looking at me and, I couldn't have felt worse for them, you know, but I was sick to the stomach having to explain why I killed their son, brother, etc., in front of them, you know, fully justifying it, but knowing that they're having to listen to that as well. You know, it's just, it's, there's no winners, you know, there's no winners at all. And as you said, you know, things going round and round in your head, the, the process taking that sort of length of time you know, it's not good. You know, there's no winners because families are left, um, you know, wanting to know why, you know, officers are wanting to tell why. And I said, there's no winners in it. You know, no, everyone's in limbo, aren't they? Everyone's waiting for some kind of conclusion, I guess. It, you're like, you're right. Absolutely. No winners at all. Do you think, I mean, if it, thank you for sharing that as well. I appreciate you talking about that because I think it's important that these things are talked about on this podcast. That's the point of it really. And I think, Steve, from your perspective, do you do you think that, that that it's possible to kind of prepare officers for that? You know, actually be able to, you know, I guess have that within the training or to to support officers that, so that they can feel that they can get through that kind of more easily. But it's so difficult, isn't it, to kind of prepare people for that situation? I certainly think it's possible, but it's almost like a an anti advert to come to the department as if you know come to the department, you may shoot somebody and, and here's what can happen of protracting investigations and having your name sort of dragged through social media as being a cop kills family man. And that's, that's, that's not the reality. There's, you know, the, the physical training, the tactical training, the, I think is, is the best in the world in this country. It is phenomenal. The, the level of skill that they put into training you to do your job properly is second to none. But for me, and it's becoming sort of more prevalent now looking at other investigations that there isn't really training that prepares you in how to take a life. 
certainly for me, one of the questions joining the firearms command was, you know, are you prepared to take a life? And, you, you know, you thought, yes, I am. I've thought about it. I've given it consideration. But do we? Do we actually know what it's like? We never get to speak to a trigger puller we, because, uh, you know, in UK law, armed police are the only people that will, can take a life legitimately. You look at the military, they're doing it in the theatre of war. There is no one else that is charged to do that duty, but we don't get to speak to them before you join. So you have this, this notion of, oh, I'll be fine, you know, it's easy, it's quite remote. It, it's not. You know, I've represented people that have been six to eight feet away from the person that, that then pulled the trigger, and unfortunately that person has died because of that. And that's huge. And as much as we can sit down and, you know, go through the process of, right, you're going to pull the trigger, and then that, that's going to sort of finish the incident, and we're all going to return to the pit venue, the investigation at the scene will take place, the body will be recovered, the family will be informed that's got to have an impact on an individual. It certainly impacted on, on sort of me as a Fed rep on looking at colleagues and how they cope with that. But it's making me question, oh, is there more that could be done in the training? And I think there is. I think there needs to be more, uh, I'm sort of stuck for words, softer skills. Is it psychological mm. preparation maybe around what it actually means for people to talk around what they've done? You know, everyone coaches with their shooting differently. For some people, it's it's a job of work other people are taking it wow this is really affecting me now and it, it gets quite involved that they may not want to continue in a firearms career but i would like to see more thought given to in the initial training and continuation training around what it actually means to you when you do pull the trigger let's talk about the time that you will be off operational duty um and you know it sounds a bit crass but you, you won't be with your team perhaps you won't be earning overtime you may have a period of time where you're just doing Monday to Friday, nine to five, whilst the investigation takes place. It, it could be 12 months, two years, five years before you get an end resolution on that. And what does that mean to you? You know, and as Barry's already said, he, you know, you talk to family. I know of officers who have not told anybody other than their immediate partner because of the way families are made up. There's some good, some bad that you know that maybe that second cousin twice removed may well go speaking to someone in the press and suddenly the press put an avenue to find out who this person is. Then they do all that background check on social media, find you drunk at a party and suddenly there's the picture of you with a beer bowl and there's the picture of someone you've shot as a family person with their kids and you think, hang on a minute, what are they trying to say here? Um, so it's not just that emotional side that affects officers, it's, it's what gets played out upon them, their families, their friends. And it's almost as if the people want to set up a farms officer to fail mm. i've yet to meet a single person that goes out that carries a gun in the you know in uk on policing that wants to have to do that they just want to do their job but i do think there is more that could be done sort of pre-shooting to make them realize not to put them off but to make them understand that you know it is impactive you may wake up in the middle of the night having terrors you it may seem irrational to other people but that's the what can happen you know and if you look at ex, people get assaulted and it leads to ptsd my colleagues pulled the trigger that can lead to ptsd because they Absolutely. have to um and i don't think it's been thought about properly in policing terms for a long time but it's becoming more prevalent now through what my colleagues and not just in firearms but road traffic custody response policing detectives any kind of serious investigation that affects you in a big way it's got to have a profound long-lasting effect and you know it takes quite a long time for those issues to manifest themselves 
And I think we're beginning to start to see a bit of tip of the iceberg now on how it's affecting people. But things like this can help because it's only human to say, yeah, that's affecting me. And let's talk about it in a grown-up way, an adult conversation, to make other people realise that, yes, they can do the job and they can get through it and cope with it. Absolutely. And there's, and there's that support network as well to help to do that as well, because I think that's the other thing that, you know, in those in those examples you just given there, both of you, actually, that, you know, if something like that, you know, happens and that, and that um, post incident investigation is going on, you, you can end up in the position of do I protect, um, you know, protect my family from what is going on, which then in turn protects me, but then it reduces the people you can actually get support from and there's an element of isolation there as well, isn't there? That, so all of that, if you think about that from a trauma perspective, all the things that we would suggest that you maybe need if you're trying to process trauma and, you know, um, and overcome those feelings, some of that actually has been removed just because of the process and the position you might put yourself in to protect others, I think. Does that fit for you, Barry? Does that kind of feel like that? Yeah, you know, yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, as I said, um, throughout my career as a firearms officer, obviously I've uh, I was, you know, fired shots and killed someone on one occasion. I was a tactical advisor in another fatal shooting, but um, also first on scene on multiple occasions, you know, where persons have been shot. And, you know, that, that all leaves a trace. It does all leave a trace. And, uh, you know, a lot of the more horrible, a lot of the more graphic things are dealt with. As Steve said, you know, just, just like every officer across the country, you know, whether it be in a custody suite, whether you're dealing with a traffic accident, you know, on a country road or a motorway, or, you know, whether you're that response officer turning, you know, up to, you know, you know, a sudden death, you know, basically, you know, or a murder, uh, you know, everything leaves that trace. And you, you, you've got to be in a position where you can um, get help, seek help. But of course, the, the organisation, to a certain extent, has got a duty of care for you because um, they, they are putting us in that position we're all volunteers you know we you know we have got to expect that we are going to deal with these things i'm not taking that away but you know there's a, a significant amount more that could be done it's changing so much for the better you know at, at the time you know when i became a firearms officer you know if, if you were to have a heart to heart and a, a little bit of a talk about your feelings and an armed responsible vehicle back then you'd have been probably kicked out of the car <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh, but thankfully um you know the culture is changing very much so and uh you know because if we don't talk about it people get ill uh, i got ill last year it was um you know, I was physically ill with them, um, you know, it was, you know, COVID related and I, I developed some mental health problems, depression, anxiety, and uh, I needed some counselling. I, you know, I was very grateful to it. But during that counselling, so much stuff came out and uh, that I thought I'd dealt with. I'd, I'd never had issues with, you know, dead people, injured people, all the traumatic sites, my shootings and such like that at all. And I'd be sitting in those sessions in tears, mm. crying my eyes out. And I didn't know why. You know, and it just all built up. But that probably wouldn't have built up if I'd handled things better and spoke more and sought probably a bit of help back then. The peer support is good, but um, that support has got to be from top to bottom. And unfortunately, some of the incidents I've been involved in within our department, the support has been outstanding from, you know, our OCU commander, you know, as a whole, you know, very well looked after. You know, the Fed reps, you know, Steve, without him, um, you know, was, you know, 
uh, giving him too much praise before his head gets too big, you know, <laughs> an outstanding Fed rep, you know, you know, Steve looked after me, you know, for a couple of bits and just absolutely amazing, you know, that help and support. But uh, some of the top level support is wanting, you know, you know, for instance, uh, you know, I've been involved in a shooting and, uh, you know, it was quite high profile. Many of my other colleagues have been involved in similar high profile shootings where we've shot a criminal or, you know, you know, or somebody with mental health issues doing very bad things has been shot. And it's almost to the point where within the organisation at the top level, you're ostracised. They do not want to show that support. No one will come down with you and have a chat from the big bosses. But if you shoot a terrorist, Mm. there's a queue mm. you know and you know i've got colleagues that have dealt with those sort of incidents and don't get me wrong i'm not taking anything away from them you know they deserve that praise but uh, you know it's all, all officers who've been involved in those cir circumstances deserve that praise and should be looked after equally in the same measure mm. and uh, until that happens all the time mm. you know including the welfare support you know from the top level then we're going to have officers having problems, maybe not during the incident or after the incident, but in the following years. It's a collective, it's a collective thing, isn't it? As it happens over the years. And as you said, if you don't, if you don't always acknowledge that those things that have happened, that it's like um, I was talking to an officer the other day and he was talking about, you know, having the, the kind of boxes in the warehouse that it's kind of gone in there, gone in there, and then something happens. And often it can be a physical illness that leads to the, the kind of, uh, emotional response if you like that is because you're just holding it and it's just kind of sat there and you're right it's it's having the right levels of support at the right times and and it being recognized as well within the within the, the organization that, that that is something that is going to have an impact for some people as time goes on as well yeah and and i, I think of the um the nature of the type of people that we are we're, we're hesitant at seeking help we're good at telling people to go and get help but we're not so good at getting it and asking for it ourselves. So, um, you know, that can be pro part of the problem. When I had my issues last year, it was a big push from my wife, you know, and, you know, a couple of close friends that made me go and get some help. And I, I probably wouldn't have done for a significant period longer mm. the, the, if they hadn't have pushed me into the corner to get that help that I very much needed at the time. Absolutely. And I think that's the key thing as well, isn't it? That it, it might be that you don't you don't particularly want to go and ask for help, but if someone else says to you and knows you well, you need to go and ask for some help, then you're more likely to do it. It almost gives you permission to do that, I think. And then that's part of it as well, isn't it? Looking out for each other as well, not just about the you because know, sometimes we don't even notice we know we need it. And I think that's the hard part. Steve, in your in your role, I guess you're supporting a lot of people who um, you know are, are in similar situations or have had incidences as the same as Barry's. What what do you kind of see in in terms of their um, coping mechanisms and you know how do people kind of get through? It's all varied, really. I mean, previously you sort of talked about the dark humour, you know, the, the canteen culture that we might call it, and mm. you know, to the to the untrained observer, it might seem it's, it is very dark humour. It's perhaps inappropriate, but when people are coping with significant amount of stress and exposed to things that they've never dealt with before, what is the appropriate response? You know, is it that archetypal stiff upper lip that you know the British are supposed to have? Where we just get on with it, say nothing, and you'll be fine. But it's interesting you talked about sort of um, boxes in a, in a warehouse and. You know, through life, we go through things and everyone copes through these things very differently. But 
they tend to compartmentalize stuff, put it in a box, put it at the back of the mind. And for me, I'm interested in what makes one person break compared to the other, because, you know, myself and Barry, similar experiences on response vehicles, hundreds and hundreds of deployments, exposure to shootings, death, destruction. But what makes me not need professional help and what may Barry need it, you know, be it physical, mental, and all those kind of things that when you look at people, you think, yeah, that person is going to struggle with this. And then quite often they're not. And it's the people that have perhaps been a bit larger than life, maybe have this facade that, yeah, I'm fine. But underneath, it's tears of a clown, you know, and they're not coping too well. And, and how can we we do more for that? And it's for me, it's having that proper conversation. And it's if I look at the way investigations dealt with the police as a whole, and we have family liaison officers who deal with families of people who've been subject to, you know, horrendous crimes, murders, rapes, sexual assaults. But at some point they have a disengagement process where for me, farms officers and as a fed rep, I've maintained those contacts with colleagues largely if I possibly can, because one, you know, their story, you know what they've gone through because you've had similar experiences and it's easy to pick up the phone and say, hello, mate, how are you doing? You don't have to talk about the job because you know it intimately because you've been with them through their evidence, through inquest, through court. So you've got a bit of an understanding. And it's just that sort of random dip sampling at times, if you can. Not everybody wants it. Some people just want to go, yeah, done the job, crack on, never speak to you again. Absolutely fine. It's just making sure that they realise that they've got someone to go to. Because, again, in the job, we can talk about it. We can come to work as colleagues and blow off to our colleagues. Yeah, I've been involved. And they get it completely. But perhaps if Barry couldn't talk to his wife about the job, then, but his wife knows he's been involved in the shooting because of what's on the telly and she knew it was the late turn shift and he was there. How do they cope with it? Who can they turn to? Can you go and talk about your incident to your local family doctor? Because, you know, you've got this view, you've got to tell the receptionist what you've gone through before you see the doctor. We've all overheard receptionists talking on the phone. They put your name out there and, oh, it's to do with the shooting, is it? suddenly yeah, everyone knows where you're going yeah you know are, are yeah. their medical records safe how secure is that data how are they referring you once they put your name down next to something which everyone's probably seen on the on the news and when there's a police involved shooting it's not just a byline it makes the news for 24 hours to a week mm. it's really easy to find out who these people are and you know how do the families cope as well because that peer support is so important mm. and it may be that you know your family and friends don't agree with what you've done it, it may be that they've, they've, they hold certain views that they've tolerated you as a police officer to a degree, but now they know you've taken a laugh. That's, whoa, way yeah. too far. You know, and how, and how do you put that out there? Thankfully, you know, there is some very good network support. You know, they've got the PFOA, the Police Farms Office Association, was set up because there was a lack of support for officers, but also family. It's a great charity. It's been there for 10 years now it's got that support that we can put people in contact with others who have been through that kind of process, but also skilled help like yourself, Alexis, who are mm. professionally trained, accredited, know how to deal with people who are going through significant events of trauma in their life. And that's important as well. And it's, so it's not just the officers, it's the family, get them through it as well, but also it helps the job because if, if these people don't return to the job, then what are they going to do? And uh, you know, I'm a firm believer, give people help, give them the tools to deal with it. They are then the best people to be in that role if they want to, mm. to train, to speak to other people on how to cope with it. You know, it's it, and sometimes that gets lost by senior management who just think you do one job, that's it, you, you can go. Well, I, I disagree. You know, give me evidence to show me that and I'll think about it. 
But for me, someone like Barry, who's been there, seen it, done it, is a great exponent for talking through the process, how to cope with it, and to signpost other people, yeah, get some help. Everybody's got their normal self, be it completely crazy, completely quiet. I was going to say it's all different, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. But it's when they change from that normal self to the other person, that's when I think they need help. And it's getting that right intervention. And, you know, most people carry on, do the job. Some people don't. It's too much. And we, you know, we fully respect that. But it's making sure that 10, 15 years down the line, when I think, you know, that maybe the, the early stages when PTSD could kick in, mm. let's contact them then. Let's see how they're doing, how they're coping. Yeah. And if they're not, let's get them some professional help. Yeah, definitely. It's that, it's that, because if, if you're not careful, you're casting people adrift, aren't you? And, and actually, they might not be ready to access help now. It might be in years, you know, a few years' time, it could be months' time. But actually, unless you've kind of monitoring people, you know, the, the long term impact, we see it with the military, don't we? That the same, it's the same type of kind of fallout from it. And you haven't got those peers around you and those, that support network that's readily available. I was thinking as well that it's having different levels of support, isn't it? Depending on what's needed. And you're right, everybody's different. So we've all got different resiliency levels. We've all got, you know, it's not just about what's happening at work either. It could be what's happening outside of work. And, you know, it could be a million and one different things that lead to somebody starting to struggle. And and actually, if it's difficult to ask for help or you feel like there's going to be a kind of sense of being weak for asking for help or whatever, whatever the stigma is around it, then actually that that causes massive risk within the team, doesn't it? it? Causes massive risk for the individual, but also within the team as well. Um, and I think that family reaction as well is something that um, isn't really thought about. You know that it changes, it can change somebody. And then, you know, if you can't talk about it at home, um, and it starts to affect relationships as well, it's that just constant kind of ripple effect. It's looking how far that ripple effect goes and supporting as many people as possible. I know some of the work we've done for the Fed has has been around um you know sometimes helping the family uh because if we can help the family we can help the officer then it, it kind of shifts what's going on but if you're only helping one aspect of that it's not the same impact i think that's something that's definitely worth thinking about isn't it for for, for officers and um, um, the time has flown by and it's been fantastic to talk to you both thank you ever so much for coming to speak to me thank you for being so um honest and open as well um, I'm, I hope that people who are listening kind of have taken something from the conversation and um, as I've said uh, in the other podcast the second series I think I said it at the beginning as well is about all these different roles so you know if people want to get in touch or if there's any questions are you guys happy for us to kind of forward people to you if there's anything they want to ask about absolutely about yeah more than happy to help out do what we can you know that's what we're there for to try and help people negotiate what they're going through what they may go through just so that they can, you know, cope with it long term. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Barry. Nice to see you both. And uh, um, we'll, there'll be other episodes going out gradually over the second series. We're going to put them out separately rather than together. So thanks, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast. It's available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you subscribe, you'll be notified of the next episode as soon as it's available. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future podcasts. So please do comment or get in touch on our social media platforms for either Fortis Therapy and Training or Oscar Kilo.